The Great Depression in Australia during the early 1930s saw many things. It saw Collingwood create VFL history, winning four premierships in a row. It saw Farlap win the Melbourne Stakes and Melbourne Cup within four days of each other. At VAFA level in 1931, it saw the formation of the Ormond Football Club, with the reason being the local young people needed a constructive way to channel their energies in difficult times. And so began the history of the 12th oldest club in the Amos. Two premierships in their first three seasons was the precursor to what was to come. Their inaugural A-section flag came around in 1950, but it was the early 70s where Ormond reigned supreme, claiming a three-peat in 71, 72 and 73. Not resting on their laurels, they became an almighty powerhouse through the 80s, winning five A-section pennants in six years, including four in a row under the tutelage of Mike MacArthur Allen. Success at the top level has been a bit thinner in recent years, but that hasn't stopped this proud club promoting a host of young talent on footballing pathways to the elite level. The push for excellence and desire to get back to the top section of the VAFA continues yearly for the brown and blue, and it's only a matter of time before they return to the lofty heights they once reached. Welcome, this is the Club in Focus podcast. We are talking all things the Ormond Footy Club today, a club that dates back to 1932. Can you believe that? They're one of the oldest clubs in the competition. Number 12, in fact, on the list of age for footy clubs in the Amos. And to help me take a look in a bit more depth in the Ormond Footy Club, it is the voice, the face, and through Zoom, he's still the best looking man in the competition, Mr. Nick Arvestead. Uh, hello, Nico. Hello, Joseph. Great intro yet again. Yes, the 12th oldest club, second oldest district club, but I'm very, very excited about Ormond today because through our research, I've found one little fact that's really got me up and about because throughout these podcasts, it's usually you banging on about your roots at St. Bernard's, but (laughs) Ormond, we have uncovered the founder, Les Smith, is a Mafra boy. What? He is a Mafra. He's a Mafra. One of my very own. I'm one of his very own. A Mafra boy, they used to call him the Gippsland Flyer. So I'm only the second person in Mafra history to be called the <laughs> Gippsland Flyer. Les was first. And I found, found this extract from Betty McGregor, his daughter, who wrote the dad, Les Smith, was a champion footballer in the bush in his youth. He was dubbed the Gippsland Flyer, training with South Melbourne when World War I broke out. The family moved back to the city from Mafra at the start of the Depression and opened a news agency on the corner of North Road and at Newham Grove in Ormond, and that's how it all started, all the way back in the beautiful God's country that they call Mafra. <laughs> well, you are up and about, absolutely up and about. I haven't heard you this up and about for a very long time, Nico. This has got some real pep in your step. So, you know, my love for St Bernard's, and of course we know a few weeks ago we did the um, the Club in Focus podcast with George and Mr Voyage, the big prez, the big bopper, of the Amos, and we know his ties to his footy club, uh, Caulfield. So, you know, people in the Amos organisation are tied to footy clubs. I'm going to go out on a limb now and say that you are tied to Ormond purely because of Mr. Lev Smith's work back in the 1930s. 
Well, uh, you know, you know, I'm a bit like Bear, and I've uh, I've got 72 children who, <laughs> whom I love, but Ormond are right up there now. And you saying, obviously, these guys being founded in 1932 from Mr. Smith. There was a few other things that happened in 1932, Joseph, just to give you some sort of idea yes. as to how old Ormond actually is. I love when you do this. I love when you do this. I love looking back through our history and seeing what else happened in that same year of foundation, that being 1932. So the parking meter, Joseph, was invented. So that little thing that we all hate, we all used to hate before (laughs) it went digital, that was invented. The BBC began broadcasting on television in 1932. James Chadwick discovered the neutron. And E.E. Gunn, now we know why it's a ring of fire because the man in black, Johnny Cash, was born in 1932. (laughs) The Sydney Harbour Bridge was opened and the biggest one for mine, a new house in 1932, was just $7,000. What? Seven grand? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Seven grand for a new house. That's that's where we've come from and that's everything that was happened when Ormond was founded by the great Gippy Flyer back in 32. I'm so glad you didn't talk about the 1932 VFL season that was won by the Richmond Footy Club by nine points over the old Dark Navy Blues. Uh, thank goodness you didn't mention that, but there were 70,000 people at the MCG. And what we wouldn't give right now to have 70,000 people at the MCG watching Richmond and Carlton go toe-to-toe. And what we wouldn't give to have our own footy season going around. But what it has done and given us an opportunity to do, Nick, is take a bit more look in a bit more depth at our Amos clubs. I love what you said there about uh, some of the history of 1932. Do you know, according to some of the numbers, uh, they're one of the most winningest teams in the VAFA, the Ormond Footy Club. They won 14 senior flags, 22 reserve premierships, 11 under-19 flags, a club 18 flag, two under-17 premierships, and an under-16 flag that they're going to claim came under the banner of the VAFA. So one of the most winningest teams in VAFA history. One thing I cannot wait to talk about very shortly. In fact, I'll tell you who we are going to talk to, Nico. You're going to love this. We've had some terrific guests over the few weeks that we've done this. George Raphael, that name may not mean much to many people outside of Ormond Circles, but this man was a member of the 1950 A-grade premiership flag. Stunning. He's in his 90s, George Raphael, and he still has a memory sharp as a tack. One of the last Australian survivors of World War II. How good is that? I can't wait to talk to George very, very shortly. Alan Naylor is going to join us, the past player. He's now the club historian of Ormond. Simon Kelleher in recent years has been a very dominant player for the side. He's uh, captained the club for seven years. He's won seven BNFs and a couple of VAFA BNFs. We're also going to chat to Mike MacArthur Allen. Arguably the greatest coach the Amos has ever seen across the journey. Named in the... Uh, Herald Sun's team of the 50 years coach, Mike McArthur-Allen, plus a host of others. So I can't wait to get stuck into it. Um, there was a bit of controversy, Nick, in 1951 that you've uncovered in some of your research. What can you tell us about the 1951 grand final loss? Well, Joseph, you know I love a controversy or two, and it all started for mine. I've got three for you, but the biggest one probably happened in 1951 when they did lose the grand final to Hampton Rovers. It was a close game. Emotions were high, as you can imagine, <laughs> and the trainer from Ormond decided to slap the umpire across the face with a towel, which is, which is not probably the greatest thing he'd ever done. And he subsequently got a, a, a nice little 12-month ban <laughs> for that behaviour. 
But that's not the biggest thing. Now, as I said, I've got three. Um, for the second one, I'm going to go back to 1935. Right. Where Ormond have played E. Rose. And unfortunately, he was reinstated. But unfortunately, he was found to have still been cycling as a professional as oh. late as 1933. Oh, you know, the tribunal called both the club and Rosie in. The club decided with Rosie that, you know, you go in, tell your story, and you get slapped. Unfortunately, Rosie didn't appear oh. in front of the tribunal. Um, so they've both been slapped for that one. I'm just going to fast forward to 1967. Now, we always talk about our canteens and the items in our canteens. Yes. E.E. Gunn has one of the best in the amateurs. There's no two ways about it. But in 1967, it seemed to be maybe emotions were high again after the game, but an Ormond player has slapped a meat pie in the face of the <laughs> University Blues player. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What is with this footy he club has, and slapping people? Four and 20. Well, you'd rather a meat pie. I hope it wasn't too hot. I hope it was, you know, it, it cooled down a little bit, but he slapped him. Front. Now, nothing serious came of it. He got a little bit of a slap on the wrist. But they're the main controversies that we've found for Ormond over the past 70, 80 years. Well, that's, we, I can't wait, actually, to talk to George in a moment and uh, then to talk to Mike McArthur, Alan, a bit later on. I'm looking forward, Nico, to finding out about their club colours. Now, you know what I'm like when it comes to club jumpers and club colours, and, of course, many people have heard many times about the St Bernard saga, but Ormond, since their inception, have had the same two colours, brown and the light blue with the yoke, the way it looks, the sort of the Melbourne style with their own colours. Now, Alan Naylor is about to join us. He's hanging on the line, the current club historian. I'm told he knows all about that, so... How about we just ask him, Nico, what he thinks and tell us about the history of the Ormond Footy Club and tell us why they have these club colours. Nick, it's with great pleasure we can welcome in Alan Naylor, a past player, now the current club historian of the Ormond Footy Club. And I'm very excited to have a chat to Alan about all things Ormond. Uh, hello, Alan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Uh, we were just talking before you came on, Alan, about the... Uh, Decision at the time when the club started to start with the brown and blue colours, and they've been your colours since the very first time you took to the field. Do you know much about the reasons why blue and brown were the colours that Les Smith picked back in 1932? That was one of the big dilemmas they had after immediately following the public meeting. What colours will we use? Because at that point there was three grades of amateur football. Uh, all those clubs had taken all the popular colours of the time. Um, school colours plus all the league sides. As it was, uh, a number of the original committee men and other supporters at the time had obviously had service in World War One, And Les Smith was in the medical corps. Uh, Doc Smith, another great legend, uh, Doc Porter, another great legend of the club, who came along in 1935, was also a doctor in the medical corps in the First World War. And those with a bit of a knowledge of Australian um, military forces' colours and the fact that they wear badges on their shoulders signifying what, what little discrete unit they're in would recognise that up until about the First World War, all medical corps, no matter what they were, wore a brown patch. So they opted for brown, which was a chocolate brown colour and fairly 
distinct because uh, there was very few other clubs wearing brown um, because they'd get lost in the mud otherwise of the fields <laughs> at the time. Uh, the blue colours, which are a little bit different to today, are more of a sky blue. Um, we're, we're tending more to royal blue these days, which is a little bit of a shame, but the sky blue was seen as something of a relief to the drabness of the chocolate brown, but uh, there's also significance in the sky blue colour in that individual and discrete units within the medical core had light blue, this light blue patch included as a as a part of the brown patch. So for many of the medical corps, including if you like John Simpson and his donkey on the fields of uh, at the fields of Gallipoli and others, he would have had a brown patch on his shoulder, which which had some part of it a sky blue, and these sky blue parts of the patch were a were in varying shapes, but obviously the one that was was taken at the time was a V. Uh, as, as it is today. And you've kept it right through to the present day and as you mentioned only a couple of minor tweaks. What about on a personal level, Alan, when did you realise that Ormond was going to be your footy club where you were going to play your, your weekend footy and then you've obviously stayed on and you're the club historian and did you just fall in love with it as soon as you walked through the doors? Well, it was convenient at first, wasn't it? I've fallen in love obviously since, but uh, we moved into the area in the mid-60s, we moved into, mum and dad owned a milk bar in North Road, Ormond, um, and I wandered down the street that was adjacent, and at the end of the ground was a footy ground, obviously, and playing at that ground was Ormond. So the year after, I'd moved down mid-year, and, I, and we'd moved across from South Australia. So, And uh, I, the following year, I just commenced in the, in the under-17s down there. That was in 1968, and I have been there ever since, effectively. Alan, you've been there since the late 60s, meaning you were there during the two periods of dominance for Ormond, the early 70s and the mid to late 80s. Can you tell us about your memories of those two periods and um, how good, I suppose, that was for you as a young bloke to watch that and to be a part of? Our under-17s were a reasonably successful side, and then I graduated, obviously, the under-19s. Unfortunately, we played in two losing grand finals in 1970 and 71 in the under-19s, uh, both to uh, Melbourne Uni at the time, which was a single side. And then I graduated to the seniors in 72, but missed the whole year because of a broken wrist that had some complications. So in 71 and 72, Ormond had obviously won the senior premierships and I'd been a spectator at both. Uh, in 73, I was a member of the 73 Premiership side. So 70s have fond memories because they sort of uh, were formative years and they were extremely successful years. Uh, thereafter, they weren't so successful. I had a personal involvement in uh, towards the end and witnessed some of Ormond's uh, great players. Speaking of their great players, the one player whose name keeps coming up when we ask people about greatest players ever to come from Ormond is Bruce Bourne. He's your only big V legend, part of that um, original cohort in 2017. Can you tell us a bit about your memories of Bruce as a player? Well, obviously, when I joined the seniors in 73, Bruce was already uh, an established member of that side, and he just, uh, that was probably his second year of playing for Victoria. He quite possibly was captain of 
Victoria. So I probably, Bruce played from about 1969 to 82. I played from 73 to 86. So for a lot of our joint careers, we played together. So I have very clear and vivid memories of Bruce as a footballer and, and the fact that Noting as a historian, I've seen that he got approached by a number of AFL sides, but as he's always said, um, he found more enjoyment out of amateur football while he's doing his tertiary studies than, than before time to spend in the AFL ranks. And he, and he clearly would have been a VFL player of note had he chosen to go there. But as with many Ormond people, as with many amateur football people, as with many local club people, Bruce was a loyal Ormond man and he and he is another that wandered down to the club from Huntingdale High in about 1966, I think, and is also still entrenched as an Ormond uh, with his grandsons uh, both playing with the club and uh, Thomas Buckley being current captain, senior captain of the club. So, yeah, very fond and long memories of, of Bruce. How good was he, Alan? I mean, he's named in the uh, past, uh, the greatest team of the past 50 years between 67 and 2017 in the centre as the captain. I think it was 1974. He was the A-grade competition best and fairest. And as you mentioned, he was a teammate of yours and played in a couple of flags. Just his on-field presence. What was he like when he took to the field? Uh, he was a very determined player, Bruce. Um, and he didn't muck around with him. He was very clean. Uh, as you say, he, he he played in most positions on the ground. I think in the that greatest ever side that you mentioned, he was picked as a sentiment. Uh, I don't yeah. know if he ever played there for Orman, but he may well, but he played just about every other position. Um, uh, he won two uh, Orman best and fairest. He was probably runner-up in three or four others. He was probably Orman's leading goal kicker for about six years when he moved from He'd won his 74 competition best and fairest at Centre back, but I don't think he meant played too many years there. He was mainly a forward during my time because we needed him as a forward and someone to kick goals. So, yeah, no, no. In my time there, certainly no greater footballer than Bruce Bourne. We're very much uh, looking forward to celebrating uh, all the highlights across this podcast. Alan, we appreciate you giving us some of your time this morning. Uh, good luck with what lies ahead in 2020. Hopefully in 2021 we see you down at EE Gun Reserve uh, following the great Mondas uh, go about their business. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. All the best to you. enthusiasm and excitement of Australian rules football. Statistics prove that in proportion to population, the Australian game of football has more followers than any other sport in the world. Why is this so? And so the stage is set. Just on 100,000 people are ready to witness the 1950 grand final. So big is the crowd, they're on the oval. Just you watch them. They're sandwiched between the fence and the boundary line. Well, Nick, this is very exciting. We've spoken to a number of people across the Club in Focus podcast, and this might be the most exciting of them all. We're going back to 1950 now. We're going to talk about the Ormond A-grade flag. 
with a member of that side, George Raphael. He's been good enough to join us. Hello, George. Good morning. George, I'm very excited to have a chat with yourself because uh, Nick and I were, oh, geez, a long way from being thought of as humans back in 1950, and you were running around for Ormond playing in their first ever A-grade premiership side. Can you take us back to that day and take us through the game itself and then the finish? Well, uh, basically, the, it was a very tight game. Uh, the word I would use would be we stole it. <laughs> it was, as I say, it was very low scoring. Um, it was played at Alstonwick Park, which was the, the amateur field in those days. Um, we had a team of goers, and uh, unfortunately, at, uh, uh, at three-quarter time, we lost our captain with an injury, another player with an injury, and just before three-quarter time, I rolled on my ankle. Uh, mm. We had no uh, reserves in those days, just the 19th and 20th, so I strapped my ankle and I was playing centre-half forward and the coach said to me, luckily the wind's changed for the last quarter, George, so he said, we're going to move you from centre-half forward. I want you to be a loose man on the back line and we're going to bring our full back down to play at centre-half forward. And my instructions to you are, whenever you get the ball, use the wind and kick it as far as you can. And just so happened I was one of the longest kicks in the uh, in the team. Uh, so uh, it, uh, when the change came at three-quarter time, we implemented those tactics. We're still behind, um, getting close towards the finishing post. Uh, I'm lucky to know to take a, a mark uncontested on the half-back line. Uh, ran my full distance, kicked it as far as I could with a torpedo punt. And luckily, one of our rovers, um, who was resting off the ball, going to the forward pocket, which was the tactic in those days, because we had no interchange bench. And so he was on his own, and the ball fell straight into his arms. The siren went, and we were a point behind. Everybody ran up to him and said, Jack, Jack, siren's gone. <laughs> anyway, tucked it under his wing and went back. He said, I heard the effing thing. So I thought, oh, that's a good sign. So if he kicked a point, it was a draw. If he kicked a goal, we win by five points. If he kicked a goal, and we won by five points. If we had a draw, I don't think we could have fielded a side for the replay the next week. Right. We had, we had too many injuries. Wow. So it was a very lucky escape. As I say, I think we stole it because the wind changed around. So, George, you were coming up against a, a very dominant university black side in 1950. You'd lost to them 12 months oh. earlier, and they had won uh, 46, 47, 48, 49, and they were going for five in yeah, a row on that particular day. What was the rivalry like with you and Uni Blacks throughout those those periods? Oh, very intense. And how long did you did you play with Ormond for? Through, was it the early 50s? Because, again, we talk about Uni Blacks on one side. You went the 49 grand final, the 50 premiership. You then go and play no. in 1951 and, and in 1952 in grand finals. I mean, it's a pretty strong yeah. Ormond side you've got there, George. Yes, well, um, uh, when I went there in 1950, I got referred there from Melbourne because uh, as a teenager, I was uh, on Melbourne's list and uh, played a few matches at reserves before I went overseas in the Navy. And when I came back, um, the amateurs restarted. And my father was present for the Parkdale Amateurs, so I played at Parkdale. 
uh, rather than go back to Melbourne just to get the amateurs off the ground. But I sustained an injury, but I got over the injury after spending 12 months as a junior coach, went back to Melbourne, and Melbourne said to me, well, um, I've played in the practice matches in 1950, and I said, we're referring you down to Ormond because um, they're in our uh, recruiting area. It was Bentley in the surrounding districts, which was Melbourne's recruiting area. And as so you played as an amateur, we're referring you down to Ormond, and that's how I started with Ormond. George, I want to ask you about another player who had a very strong connection with Melbourne. As you said, Ormond and Melbourne, it was in their, is in their area. Um, but Laurie Mithen is a player that you played with. Laurie was a very promising junior. Uh, I think it was about 1952 or three. We sent an amateur side down to Tasmania. It was the first time uh, a district side like us uh, took on um, the uh, runners-up in the Tasmanian League. We played the preliminary uh, match before the grand final down in Hobart. And uh, Laurie Mithen. Uh, came down with us and he was my roommate. And Laurie was a staunch Richmond supporter. And I said to him, um, when uh, Melbourne approached, I said, Laurie, I said, forget about your associations with Richmond. You ought to go back to, you ought to go to Melbourne. That'll be a better club. So that was my association with Laurie. And as you know, Ormond produced quite a few good footballers for Melbourne. There was Laurie Mithard, and there was uh, Bobby Rouse, uh, Dick Fenton-Smith, Colin Wilson, just to name a few. George, can I just ask you, looking back, obviously some fond memories and some great memories at Ormond. I mean, what does the, the Ormond Footy Club mean to you? They were very good to me when I first went there because I was a young fellow, uh, returned from that service, uh, just getting back in life, newly married, making my own home, and they really looked after me. I can't speak highly enough of them. George, I'm sure they can't speak highly enough of you, and I'm sure when you do wander down to EE Gun Reserve, you're, you're welcomed with open arms, and you, know, you tell a great story about the 1950 Premiership. It's fantastic to spend some time with you and, and recounting those memories. Thanks for joining us, George. I'm glad to be able to help many contribution I made to the club for the club that helped me. Nico, how good was that to hear from George Raphael? member of the 1950 A-grade premiership side at Ormond. Oh, boy. Can you imagine kicking a goal after the siren to win the grand final? Oh, could you imagine hearing the siren and then having all the boys tell you <laughs> the siren's gone? I love that little quote. I've effing heard it. Yes, he has. He knew what was going on. He knew exactly what was happening. Now, that was fantastic. And even uh, throwing in the question about Laurie Mithen and him having roomed with him and just his memory of the early 50s is just absolutely unbelievable. Laurie Mithen, of course, one of many who played at Ormond and then went and played some VFL footy, even some AFL footy for modern-day players. Before we do get through that, I just want to mention quickly, we talk, We saw the – George told us the story about the scores. They won by five points. They were coming up against arguably the powerhouse side of the competition then in Uni Blacks who were gunning for five flags in a row. They themselves – I wonder if they feel like at the time it was a bit of a wasted period where they've played off in uh, four grand finals for one win, which was the 1950 flag. Did you know in 1952, Nico, they lost the grand final to Uni Blues, but they had more scoring shots than Uni Blues, but they lost by nearly 10 goals. 
Uni Blues kicked 20 goals, won 121. Ormond, 8-16-64. <laughs> that is the straightest goal kicking in an Amos Grand Final in the history of it. 20 goals, won 121. I think that's the straightest kicking in the history of any Australian rules football game. <laughs> that is absolutely unbelievable. That Uni Blues team had some very, very good players like Duncan Anderson as well. So, no, it was, it was a, a good period for Ormond, but maybe they didn't capitalise as much as they potentially could have. No, they did in the 70s and in the 80s, and very shortly Mike McArthur-Allen is going to join us and talk all about that. I just You mentioned Laurie Mithen. We're going to go through some of these stars that played at Ormond and then went up the ranks and played elite-level footy. So, Laurie, back in the 1950s that you mentioned there, a couple of others that really stick out for me is Neville Crow. Of course, you'd know Nev being a famous tiger. Barry Beecroft, do you know much about Barry, Nico? Played at South Melbourne for a few years in the late 70s and then a season in the 80s. Uh, Steve Smith played for the Demons, not the Steve Smith who's currently playing for Australia in the cricket. He was there as well. David Miller played a season with the Tigers. Uh, Simon Eichold, people will know him, played for the Demons for a few years. Played one season at Richmond, so I'm sure you know all about him. This is my favourite name in footy, Johnny Rombotis. Johnny Rombotis played for Fitzroy, Port Adelaide and the Tigers through the 90s. Matty Robbins played for the Cats and the Bulldogs. Will Thirstfield, you know Will very well, I'm sure well, you I remember. Having... I remember his first ever game for Richmond where he was tasked with Nick Rewalt and absolutely towed him up. Of course he did. I'm sure you have his number on your back, Will Thursfields. Uh, Simon Buckley played for the Demons and for the Mighty Magpies. Jack Frost played some games with Collingwood, of course, went up to Brisbane. But the number one man, Nico, who I've, I've gotten to know pretty well through my other roles away from the Amos, is working with uh, Mighty Max Gorn, the captain of the Melbourne Footy Club. Former junior from all, absolutely I do, Maxie Gorn. He's come a long, long way. He's one of the premier ruckmen now in the AFL, probably alongside Brody Grundy. There was one from the very early era. In the 1941 season, he played with St Kilda. His name's Bob Flegg. Now, I noticed throughout the research that you sent me a couple of notes on Bobby Flegg. What did you find on Bobby? Yeah, Joseph, Bob Flegg, a clever full forward who in kicking 130 goals for the season in 1937... He became the first player to kick over 100 goals in his first year of A section. So imagine that, Joseph, going up to A section, playing your first season in the top grade in the Amos and kicking 130 goals. Not a bad effort at all. As I mentioned, he went to St Kilda, Nico, 1941 that season. 18 games, he won three of them. The Saints lost 15. Um, He kicked 47 goals. Kick seven against the Cats in his second game of league football. After round four, he'd be probably leading the Coleman. He'd kick seven, five, that's 12, six, 18. Round five, another bag of seven. So he was on 26 goals from his first five games of league footy. Bobby Flegg, out-and-out superstar that, that came from the Ormond Footy Club. Now, do you know who else is an out-and-out superstar that came from the Ormond Footy Club, Nico? Mike McArthur Allen. Yeah. The master Ooh. coach, the coach of history in the Amos, came from Ormond. He's about to join us. I cannot wait to hear his story. Blow it half forward. There's the siren. It's all over. Ormond premiers for 1985. And there it is. On the scoreboard, 28 and a half minutes played. Ormond 16, 14, 110 have defeated the last cell in the A section final. 14, 11, 95. A 15 point win. And who would deny them that? There it is. That's the final score. The 
in the woman. Back to back A section flag. 30 metres out, the siren went, Ingleton kicks the goal, umpires paid it, but it's a premiership to Ormond, they've won it by 8 goals, 48 points in the end, 17 goals, 11, 113, Collegians 9, 11, 65. Nick, this is very exciting, we're about to have a chat with arguably the greatest coach in amateur history, he is a stalwart of Ormond, but uh, through some of my learnings... When he did wander down to Ormond, it was all a bit of a wild card. I'm talking about Mike MacArthur-Allen, and he joins us on the Club in Focus podcast. Hello, Mike. Hello, Joe. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us. Is that fact that it was all a bit of a wild card, that when you did go down to Ormond, you weren't really knowing what you were walking into, what you were quite applying for, and you had no real idea about this A-section and this Ormond powerhouse that you were about to build? I've done my due diligence as Ormond, and I had played there for half a year, in fact, in 69, so I, I knew about the club, and I'd followed it through the, through the amateur results anyway, even though I'd started playing and coaching in another competition. Um, but I certainly was very honoured to be given the job. And when you were given the job, uh, Mike, what did, you, what did you face when you got to Ormond? I mean, did you, did you have to build it from the ground up? Was there things that were already established in the team that you could work and mould with? Or, I mean, how did it start for you? Ormond had been a reasonably successful club. They hadn't had a flag for over a decade and in Ormond's uh, impatience, that was probably too long. Uh, when I arrived, there'd been a change of president and secretary and they were very keen to see some younger players come into the side rather than continue to persevere with some well-established and, and reputable players, but who, who may be towards the end of their career. So um, my my brief was basically to get some younger players exposed to A-grade senior football and uh, hopefully build from there. It was a pretty precarious start, though, because at round 10, we had two wins and eight losses. And I think my job might have been as unlikely to continue as perhaps uh, a few of the NRL and even the coach of Adelaide, should I, dare I say it. The president was pretty firm in his resolution that he wanted me to stay on. And uh, despite a lot of pressure from from some older people around the club, um, we managed to turn it around and we went five of the last six and only missed the four by a game and a half. So the promise was there. But it takes a while to, to change the style of football and perhaps uh, longer than I hope and the players hope but we got there in the finish. And it all started I suppose from a success point of view for yourself in 1985 but I was reading in your 30 year anniversary speech that you gave in 2015 the importance that you place upon looking back to where the club came from and for Ormond um, that was the early 70s when they experienced that um, that great success. I mean how much did you learn from looking back at Ormond in the early 70s that you brought forward to the 80s that played a role, I suppose, at least in that first flag? Well, I was I was very fortunate to still have around the club a number of people who had played in that time. And we often used those as sounding boards as to what we needed to do to, to ensure some success. That was a magnificent period where they won three A-grade flags in a row and uh, were probably favourites for a fourth and got surprisingly beaten by Uni Black. So we used a lot of those people's experience and, in fact, 
some of those people assisted me on match committees at times. I, I uh, remember Bruce Corbin, who was a stalwart of the club, uh, became chairman of the match committee and picking their brains was incredibly valuable for me and was a great learning curve for the players to hear what success, the, the cost it requires to be successful over a period of time. When you did take over, you installed a, a female to the coaching ranks, uh, Marion Fisher, who became your runner. You had uh, some, someone come down and tape the games and you'd cut the uh, footage up on Sundays. You had dossiers on opposition players. You had helpers do forward scouting. I mean, this is the 80s, Mike, and you're ahead of your time. What were your coaching philosophies? Uh, I heard Mick Malthouse earlier in the week on, on radio talk about some of his were... Uh, in particular, Tommy Hafey, was if the opposition kicked 35 goals, we were going to kick 36, and that's how we were going to win. Ross Lyon, of course, defence wins premierships, and they're dour, boring affairs. What was your coaching style like, Mike? Gee, I hope I wasn't as boring as Ross Lyon. Um, <laughs> but, but certainly, we, we, didn't, we never had a forward line initially that was going to kick more than the opposition. So... Most good coaches, and I spent a lot of time in the company of David Parkin and Alan Jeans, and there's two that would probably testify to, to exactly that, that defence is the key to start to build a side. And so hopefully not as boring as the football that's being played at the <laughs> AFL at the moment, but we certainly were a pretty solid defensive team early on before we managed to find a really outstanding full forward in Paul Stewcraft and later on a outstanding centre-half forward in Mark McDonald and then Stuart Carboon. These are the players you can build a forward line around, but our defence was very solid, very solid indeed. Russell Barnes was captain of the side for most of my time there. A wonderful example of a player who just begrudged his opponent having any sniff of the ball, let alone a possession. So I arrived at the club when some young players were on the verge of coming through, Ricky Jackson, who went on to play league football, Simon Eichel, who went on to play league football. Having those players and being able to develop the philosophy, my philosophy was certainly you just needed to be more professional. And when you talk about me being ahead of my time, uh, I may have been for amateur football, but some of those things were being done, of course, in other competitions, not just the AFL. And I just figured that that was the way you had to be if you wanted to. I'm, I'm a teacher by trade. Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. So, yes, vision was incredibly important and information on opposition players. I think before I came to Ormond, um, most of the players playing week to week may not know who they're going to play on the following week. Well, we changed that by making sure that we had some forward scouts and some information on who we were up against and who players were good in opposition sides that we needed to counter. Let's delve into 87, 88, 89 and uh, 90, those famous years of the Ormond Footy Club. Everything you just talked about and, and taking those into those grand finals, did you use any sort of different motivation on grand final day or was it, as many people will say, that it is just another game but, of course, mentally it's not just another game. There's a pretty big reward at the end of it, Mike. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a throwaway cliche that I don't necessarily subscribe to. And I could say that without doubt the motivation for us was that in 84 we were runners-up to De La Salle and in 85 we won. And that was a taste of success that the club had been looking for. And I think we may have got ahead of ourselves because we got knocked out of the first semi the following year. 
And that was a reminder that we still needed to work harder each year if we were going to be successful. So the next four years after that became just trying to get better every year and not being content with being where we were. And we went out deliberately to try to find an additional five or six players every year, despite having won the premiership the year before, we tried to find five or six players who were good enough to play at senior level, maybe from other clubs, maybe from the country, who would bring something to the club and be a little bit, add that extra hunger because they hadn't been there the previous year when a successful team had won a premiership. And I think that, that added enormously to our progression through those four years where we were up against some very good sides, but to win four in a row, that's an absolute compliment to the depth of playing ability of that Ormond club. Well, I want to ask you about one of those victories in particular. In 1990, seems to come up as arguably the greatest of those four victories. You're only leading Collegians by a point at halftime before you kicked away in the third, and they came back again in the fourth, and I think you only got up by seven points in the end. Would you rate that as the best grand final win that you coached? Uh, hard to split 87 and 90 because in both years, in 87 we are up against Dabs and they were touted as the best amateur side running around and being seen for a long, long time. So that was a pretty tough year too. But 90 up against Collisions and we'd played them the year before. Interestingly enough, we'd played Xavier two years in a row and then Collegians two years in a row. But 90 required an enormous amount of planning because there is no doubt that Collegian side was just full of stars, some really outstanding players. And so, yeah, I guess to win that day against uh, a formidable um, opposition was... Uh, an absolute tribute to the players because they never once lost sight of saying to themselves, we're good enough to win this. And, uh, yeah, a point at half time, it's all even, isn't it? So it's a second half performance. And, and it was one of those days, as is often the case at Austwick Park, where the wind played a fairly significant part in the, in the day. We had it in the third quarter and managed to kick away. And then Collegians were going to charge at us in the last with the assistance of the wind. And, and run us close, and they did. But we managed to hang on. We had a plan to absorb time. Collegians didn't bridge the gap. So, yeah, that was a meritorious victory. And, of course, to get four in a row, there's not many clubs that have ever done that in amateur history, let alone in any competition. So that was an outstanding achievement. And to win five premierships in six years, that was a time when Ormond was clearly the benchmark of the VAFA section. Mike, talking to you and looking through the records, you scream the old adage, prior pre preparation prevents poor performance. But I have met you, Mike, and you're, you're a big man. You're an intimidating man, for those who don't know. Did you ever use that to pull your boys in the line? Did you, did you ever dish out any, any sprays? You're well known as a, as a great orator. Uh, well, yes, I have to confess that I did. Um, <laughs> remembering that I, David Parker was one of my uh, mentors uh, and indeed Alan Jones, and they were renowned for giving a spray when they thought it was justified. You can't do it too often, but to have any effect at all, it's got to be used judiciously. But, you know, being a teacher, you're dealing with uh, a lot of 
uh, to a senior class or so dealing with young men, and they weren't that far in age difference to what I was dealing with at Ormond. Um, yeah, I did use some uh, fairly aggressive uh, speeches at times when I thought it was necessary. But the lovely thing about it is that I don't believe over the years I lost too many players. I think I can walk into Ormond at any time and, you know, I've been honoured with a life membership there, so I do see them. And uh, everybody seems to be as friendly as when we were all there together playing. So I don't think there's too many grudges held. I think uh, I was really well supported by an assistant coach in Jeff Riley. And he often said to himself, said to the players jokingly that he's the good cop and I'm the bad cop. And he played that role very well. He knew exactly what we were trying to do. And so when it was necessary, yes, I'll, I'll plead guilty to that. Um, I also perhaps, people may not realise, but I coached uh, over 500 games, but the umpires would say I probably umpired 500 games <laughs> as well. I read a piece recently uh, where you were giving some quotes and uh, you do go to the MCG when footy is in Melbourne and Carlton is playing and uh, they make fools of themselves and you haven't made a bad move in all the games that you've watched of the Carlton Footy Club. <laughs> so you're still coaching from the sidelines, Mike, for the old Dark Navy Blues. Uh, well, yes, I do. Having been born in the suburb, went to school in the suburb, I'm uh, died Navy Blue for sure. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm patiently waiting. and I'm, I have my grandsons down listed on the waiting list for... Uh, membership of the MCC, and they are already members of the Carlton Football Club, and they're only five and ten, uh, so they've got a fair way to go. But I keep telling them, listen, we will get good. We will get there. <laughs> Just be patient. And, but it's been a long time, yes. And I'm, I, I must admit, not so much the football this year. It's terrible to watch at times, but uh, certainly I've seen a lot of Carlton games at the MCG where I thought, why would you make that move? So, yeah, once a coach, always a coach, I guess. Obviously an incredible career, but in 2012, um, you received probably one of your greatest awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Alan Jeans Award from the Victorian Australian Football Coaches Association. You're only the fifth person in history to receive that award. How was that back in 2012, Mike? One of the greatest highlights of my coaching career to receive that, and uh, and particularly an award that's named after a, a guy who I had enormous um, admiration for in Alan Jones. And I've been a, a member of the Australian Football Coaches Association. I was one of their inaugural members, actually, that David Parkin and myself and a few others helped get it started. Um, and I thought that was a really worthwhile organisation to support, and I. I guess from uh, having coached such a long time, I was in a position to be able to uh, provide some support and mentor a few coach, young coaches along the, along the way. But the thing about Lifetime Achievement Awards, when you get one, the, the real uh, hidden message there is uh, you're getting towards the end, uh, Mike, and uh, perhaps it's time they gave it to you before you shuffled off. <laughs> Well, I don't know who gave you this one, Mike, but you're the uh, the senior coach of the greatest VAFA team of the past 50 years when it was announced in 
2017. I'm not sure whether Orman put your name forward, whether John Anderson called you up with some quotes when he was doing this this side. But, I mean, how does that sit with you, considering the amount of fantastic coaches that do come through the Ammos, that you're number one? Yeah, that is humbling. John John Anderson did ring me about that to, uh, to tick my brains about a few other players, and he did say, you're in the contention for uh, the position of a coach. And I felt rather humbled by the list of people that I could rattle off who have been outstanding coaches in amateur football. It was a, a really terrific thrill to read your name in the paper as, as with that award attached to your name. And uh, I thank John Anderson and the other people. He had three or four others who were part selectors, um, I guess, the, the number of players that they needed to look through and someone had to coach it. And I noticed uh, Bernie Shea was a, listed as assistant coach. He is, yes. And my only comment to John afterwards was, I would have thought that would have been a fairly interesting performance on the sideline, the Carter Allen and Shea <laughs> trying to talk to each other. I don't know that the language would be particularly uh, clear as to what each of them were trying to say. <laughs> Who'd get the last word in? Oh, it'd have to be me. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd get the first, but he'd get the last punches. <laughs> oh, it's good to see the rivalry still runs deep. There's one person I do want to ask you about. He's the current CEO of the competition. He's also a big V champion, and he played alongside uh, the 22 boys that you coached throughout those uh, glory years. His name's Brett Connell. Uh, now I find him to be an interesting, quiet character. But what was he like out in the field, Mike? Did you have trouble reining him in, or was he okay? He'll uh, publicly profess that he never took notice of any coach that ever advised him to do anything. But he was a young player who came through from our under-19 side, played in a premiership there, and we uh, very early on spotted his ability. And, uh, yeah, there were times we needed to uh, perhaps rein him in a little, (laughs) but uh, generally he was an outstanding player, very started in the back pocket, made his way into the centre. That's a wonderful direction to go because usually people on the ball get relegated to the back pocket as their career comes to a, to, to its end. But he went the other direction, which shows his ability. And he uh, he was an outstanding player for Ormond in a number of those premierships and important games throughout the year to give you a chance to be in a final. But he was also an outstanding big V player, boy. When he put that big V on, he seemed to grow uh, an extra inch or two and run a bit quicker because along with Robert Fuller and Bruno Conti and players of that standing, he was just a terrific state player. And uh, and I'm just so thrilled that he's the CEO of the football association that I love. And I think they've faced a very, very difficult year, telling you nothing you don't already know. But I think if there's anybody that could see the organisation through to healthier times in 2021 with Brett Connell. So I'm very, very pleased he's there. And uh, I think his training in at AFL Vic, where he spent a number of years learning football administration, and prior to that was tutored pretty well by Phil Stevens when he worked with um, Phil at, the, at Elsterwick Park. He's going to be an outstanding football administrator. Mark my words, he has a long way to go in our competition, and I think he has greener fields ahead 
So watch out, Gil McLaughlin. If one VAFA big ruckman can get there, surely a VAFA champion rover can get there as well. <laughs> I'm sure that Bear will absolutely love that and he'll dish out the 50 as soon as he sees you next. I just want to ask you, last one from me, Mike. Um, obviously, a storied career at the club. Looking back on it all now, what does Ormond Amateur Football Club mean to you? Oh, it's home. It's truly home. I can walk into that club and feel very, very comfortable, no matter who's coaching, no matter who's president. And we've got an outstanding president over the last few years, Richard Simon, who, ironically enough, umpired the last two grand finals at Ormond won uh, against Collegians. And here he is leading the club through a difficult time. And he's had his boys playing there and his wife's wonderful support for him. But uh, Ormond to me is the most special club that I, and I've coached in a few others and, and played in a couple of others coming from the country, but Ormond will always be um, maybe apart from Carlton, the next most important <laughs> club in my constellation. Oh, it's a lovely note to finish on, Mike. Thank you for being so generous with your time, for walking down memory lane with us and having a bit of a laugh as well. Uh, good luck for what lies in store in 2020, and hopefully we can catch up with you at the footy very soon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, Nico, we've spoken to some superstars from Ormond already throughout the Club in Focus podcast, and in the modern era of the Ormond Footy Club, most fans would wall down there on most Saturdays and watch Simon Diggs Kelleher go about his business. He has had a storied history with the Ormond Footy Club. A few years ago, brought up game 250. Uh, hello, Simon. Hey, guys. How did it all start for you, Simon? Uh, what was the reasons you got involved with the Ormond Footy Club? Uh, so I played all my juniors at uh, St Paul's, but grew up in the area, obviously. And my older brother Chris, who also played uh, 250 games at Ormond, joined there I think in the early 90s. So um, as a teenager, um, remember going down the year gun regularly and watching watching the side. So um, I was pretty sure all through my juniors that I'd end up at Ormond in the seniors. So um, yeah, it's been a a big part of my life, even you know from the time I was sort of, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old. You've been club captain. You've been a seven-time senior best and fairest winner, a three-time competition best and fairest winner, a big V rep player, a former club committee person, a member of the 2008 Premiership. Is the trophy the thing that sits most fondly with you? Oh, absolutely. I think that and friendships. You know, I spent the bulk of my adult adult life there and have made, you know, my closest mates are all from Ormond um, and will be for the rest of my life, I think, but... We all played for premierships. I only got one at Ormond in my, you know, however long it was, 18 years or whatever I played there, but that was special. And I think also coming off a pretty lean period for, for the club after such a, a storied kind of history and, and so much success at A-grade level through the 90s and the early 2000s, it was it was pretty tough to, to stomach being unsuccessful and dropping down the grades. I think to be able to, to pick the club back up again and, and, and lead us um success on that day that was um, yeah we'll never forget it so i mean you say you've only had the one premiership but you did make it count you won the rhythm and medal for best on ground on the day coached by russell barnes can you take us through that game you defeated hampton rovers by 38 points and your memories i suppose that game and the celebration as you said coming off a few lean years for the club so growing up, obviously, in the area, well, Hampton's always been a, a rival. Um, even at St Paul's, you know, it's, it's a local club. You, you know the guys you play against. It was a pretty consistent group of guys 
over a number of years. So I think it was pretty special to play another district side in that game. We'd had a, a bit of an up and down year, so we, um, you know, through the middle of the year we were struggling a little bit, but then towards the end it really started to click and Hanson had been on top all year, but we beat them in the second semi. So, you know, going straight into the granny, that gave us um, you know, a, a lot of confidence, but um, always in the back of our mind thinking they, you know, they had some really good players running around as well. Um, it was down at Sandy and it was a windy, windy day, you know, as you, you tend to do you get in the spring at um, Sandy. It was an interesting day to play because in two quarters of the game you were up and about and, and you know, your, your ball was flying 80 metres and the other two quarters you were <laughs> just trying to keep it near the boundary line and hope they didn't score goals. We started off really well into the wind, I think. Um, that was the biggest case for us. And then we were able to, to convert in the second and the, and the fourth quarter. And I think Matty Robbins, um, you know, come back from the Bulldogs, he was playing. I think he kicked six on the day. So he... He really stood up, you know, probably half time when we walked in and we were a few goals up, it had, had done really well. I was feeling pretty confident then. And then, yeah, in the last quarter, we, we kicked a couple of towards the left, towards the end of the game. And yeah, then I started to think in that we're actually going to do it after, after so long. That was pretty special. And then, um, yeah, getting back to the club, singing the song with all the fans. It was, um, yeah, it was a pretty cool few days. But in 2018, um, Ormond had another grand final win against Hampton Rovers. This time, though, it was only by six points. What I want to ask you about your memories of that game, because I was at that game and Max Kennedy kicked five goals and he was best on ground. It was absolutely unbelievable. A couple of last quarter goals. Do you remember the excitement um, of that grand final, particularly that last quarter from a spectator point of view? Oh, yeah, it was I mean, I didn't, I didn't know much. I didn't watch much footy in 2018. I, I deliberately kind of stepped away from everything for a little while. I was, I was studying and doing some other stuff. So I hadn't seen much during the year. I'd only heard about some of the younger guys, um, and obviously Maxie was one of them. But just to see him take over, I think he was only 17 at the time. Or maybe, maybe he had just turned 18, but, you know, he's you know, absolutely at the start of his career. And just think, you know, he had so much poise and um, kicked some really smart goals. But then... Um, I don't know if you remember the banana in the last quarter from the boundary line to, to either get it back to even or whatever it was. And I was down that end. That was just unbelievable. It was great for me to see a, a new group of people kind of take the mantle, I suppose. You know, I was the, the last premiership captain for the club. So Tom Buckley was able to kind of take that over for me. But the Buckleys are another, you know, long-serving family of almonds. Um, but also a really young group and a really sort of enthusiastic group. So it's one of those things that you think, okay, that's that's probably setting us up for a bit more sustained success. And I think, you know, the club's I think in a really good position now from a playing group to have some more sustained success over the in the coming years. So yeah, it was a, a awesome day and a just a fantastic game. Simon, uh, we've just asked you about 2008 and 2018. And, and in those years, not only did your seniors win flags, you also celebrated reserves premierships. So it must have been a nice feeling around the place to have, you know, not just the senior side do it, but also the guys that helped make that senior side so great throughout a year when you need to call on them throughout some of those wet and cold winters. Yeah, absolutely. And, that's, and it makes the... Um, I just remember the celebrations. It was a club celebration because, you know, most players were, were participated in the premiership. Um, and while either, if a reserves side wins or a senior side wins, you know, the club's really happy. Half of the players didn't, you know, experience it personally. So um, that was really special to have, you know, whatever it is, 44 guys who got to experience that on the same day. Um, you know, it makes the celebrations 
more fun, makes the um, reunions more fun because you've got a, just a bigger group of people who are um, involved in it and, and, and have those memories. So, and interestingly, the um, the eights seem to be a bit of a thing at Ormond. So, um, it goes, I think, all the way back to 68. We won one flag, 78, 88 for seniors and reserves, I think, 98 the reserves, and then 08 and 18. So I don't know what, that, what that's saying, but come 2028, we're expecting some big things, I suppose. <laughs> Let's hope there's a couple more before then for your good selves, but just in case yep. it isn't, we'll start counting down to it now. Can I ask you, though, through your time playing, it was probably the period where Ormond didn't have the same heights that they reached in the early 70s and the late 80s playing in A section, but... Was it talked about through your days that, hey, if we eventually get good enough, we can compete with these big sides and big clubs around the Amos competition? Yeah. I mean, it's always there. And you, and you look up at the boards and the older players, not that they bring it up, but, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore the fact that these, these guys were, you know, they were champions and they, you know, they, they led amateur football for such a long period. So I think there's always a bit of pressure and, you know, a bit sort of sitting in the back of your mind. But, the club's pretty good at that. Like, it's not something that um, is expected of us, obviously. We're all doing our best. We're all trying our hardest. Um, there were a whole range of reasons why we, you know, weren't as successful during that time as, as we might have been in the past. But I think what happened was we got a really good core group of senior players in probably the early 2000s, I think, when it started. And it took us a few years to kind of get going, but that was a really good sort of foundation um, for the club. And I think that's the bit that's exciting, I suppose, now is um, I look at the, at the younger guys. You know, a lot of them I played with in my last couple of years who are now in their kind of mid to late 20s. And I feel like that's the position we were in in the late 2000s. We, you know, we had that really good core group of, of senior players. So um, the history is the history. It's, you know, it's been an amazingly successful district club um, and probably punched above its weight for, for a lot of its existence, um, considering, you know, some of the... The networks and the, and the, the, just the size of the um, you know, populations in some of the old school teams, um, we were where it is a bit of a badge of pride that we're a district club, and you know it's really just kids from the local area who are playing. But um, yeah, I think that's that's the bit that I'm most excited about now and into the future is that 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 core group of players I think have you know, have real scope to to have some success in the in the coming years. Simon, I just want to ask your last one from me. Um, you mentioned those club champions from the 70s and from the 80s, and you had the opportunity to captain alongside Russell Barnes, who was your coach, particularly throughout 2008 grand final year. What was it like working alongside Barney, I suppose, and one of the greatest ever players to pull on the brown and blue? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. And he was, coincidentally, the I think, you know, Barney captained the, the, the last premierships for the club or the most of the last premierships in the late 80s. That was quite special, you know, to... And he actually said it to me after 08, you know, that he'd handed over the mantle to me now. You know, I'm the I'm the premiership captain now, which he was really kind of happy and pleased about. But he and I have had a, a really close relationship for a long time, actually, um, going you know, prior to that 08 grand final, um, just by virtue of me being captain, him being around the club um, on and off throughout the sort of 2000s. He came to my wedding, so we've got, we've got and, and continue to have a really sort of close working relationship. And equally, there were other people, you know, not just Barney around, you know, who were playing in, in those 80s flags. I mean, Tim Hill was coach to the reserves in the under-19s for a little while there, um, regularly catch up with, you know, Brett Connell and 
um, Andrew Jobling, Matt McConville. So you know all these guys who were sort of superstars in that era. I've I've had really good kind of relationships with over the years, and um, and that's I suppose a, you know a great thing, which probably happens at all clubs. But you know our version of that is all of these guys continuing to to support and and come down and be interested in the results, even if it's just checking them on the weekend. So. Um, it's had a massive impact on my life. In 2017, of course, you played your 250th game and you got chaired off and I think uh, the local paper or the Herald Sun wrote a story off the back of it. Just a lazy 94-point win. Not a bad day at the office for Ormond in your 250th. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And it was good that, it, um, you know, one of the great things about MOs is you play different sides every year, but um, there are sides definitely that you play, have, have played more. And for me, Nolte was one of those sides. Um, so I was really happy to play it against a side that I had a bit of history against. I really do like playing out at Nobs. Um, I like their ground. We've had some you know, great games over the years. I think early on they probably had our measure. But then the last few years we definitely sort of were able to get on top of them. So, um, yeah, that was pretty cool. I got to kick a couple of goals. And as, as you know, a traditional backman goals don't come that often to me. So that was, um, that was pretty cool as well. Particularly for me, because my brother had played 250 as well, I was really keen to get to 250 so that we could both, you know, be up on that plaque or have our plaques up in the room with, with that 250 number. So I was comfortable then that I'd sort of done everything I needed to do with Ormond and that I wanted to do um, once I hit that milestone. So, yeah, that was a, it was a pretty cool day. Oh, that's an awesome, awesome way to, to finish an awesome chat, Simon. Thanks for joining us on the Club in Focus podcast. Congratulations on all you've achieved with the Ormond Footy Club. It's been uh, magnificent to reflect uh, for the last few minutes about your own career and your time at Ormond. Thanks for joining us. No worries, Ben. Thanks very much. Great to chat to Simon Diggs Callagher Nico in 2017, brought up his 250th game with Ormond. Uh, how about those numbers that he's produced with the Ormond Footy Club? Eight years as club captain that included the 2008 flag, seven-time senior best and fairest winner, a three-time comp best and fairest winner, a VAFA Big V rep, and a former club committee person. He won those medals, I'll tell you now, in D grade in 2005 and in C grade 2006 and 2007. He has got a storied history, and he's not alone at the Ormond Footy Club, Nick. No, he is not. They've had some outstanding players over the years, and we've already covered quite a few of them, with probably the number one um, for most people from the Ormond Footy Club being Bruce Bond, 313 games, a big V legend, and one Woodrow medal. We've then got another couple of Woodrow medals. Actually, they've had more Woodrow medalists than any other club, which is uh, it just shows you how successful they've been. Matty McConville has won two Woodrows and a Moore medal in B section. But then the other Woodrow medalists, Phil Merton, Max Brook, S. Rowe, Laurie Mithin, who was spoken about, and Richard Fenton-Smith, another player who went on to play successfully a few years at VFL level. Their Big V champions, uh, Brett Connell, uh, the Big Bear, the CEO of the VAFA, Barney, and Phil Kingston, another integral player during that late 80s period and Simon Callagher as we've mentioned is clearly the one from the recent years with two Zacharias and a Pepper. Do you reckon they're going to get a 400 game player Nico and I ask you that because Damien Cleary he's still playing he's on a round 375 he broke the record in round three of 2019 he's playing in the thirds now we know what's happened with 2020. Will he go around, you reckon, in 2021? Can we put the call out to Damien Cleary when he listens to this? We want you to pull the boots on again next year. We need a 400-game player at Ormond. 
hope so. I really hope so. And it's the funny thing about this 2020 year is that, you know, it's, it's either going to end a few careers because, you know, the, the lack of consistency or hopefully on the flip side, you know, a year off for Damo means he's maybe got two more years left in him and he can notch up that 400. It's going to prolong mine, Nico. I have just decided that I've done all my proper rehab. I might just pull the boots back on again. And every week we do one of these Club in Focus podcasts, I consider maybe going down to one of these footy clubs and, and pulling on the boots on their training nights. So if any of them are willing to have a superstar come down and play in the forward pocket, by all means, invite me down, Nico. So we've just mentioned some absolute champions like Bruce Bourne, Matt McConville, Phil Merton. Joe Pignataro doesn't necessarily fit in the same column, let me assure you. I did mention, though, that I was a forward, and they have had some leading goal kickers as well, Nico. Uh, Simon mentioned Matty Robbins, who kicked a few goals in the grand final. In 2008, he actually won the C-grade goal-kicking medal. Greg James in B-grade in 65, 66, 67, 68, if you don't mind. And then in A-grade, they've had two do it. Kevin Ladd in 1973, which was a premiership year. And Paul Shoecraft in 87, 88, and in 1990, all premiership years. Uh, they have had leading goal kickers in A-grade. How about that? If they ever get back there, they're a force to be reckoned with. Let's keep moving along, Nico. We're going to have a chat to the current president who has a story to tell in itself that I can't wait for him to uncover. You uncovered this earlier in the week, and I am fascinated by how it's all going to play out. I'm talking about Richard Simon. He's about to join us. I think the second quarter was the one where we really had to show out two colours. Yeah, the final quarter was good too, but I think that... And um, I'd just like to do a tap dancing routine. Thanks, Jobber. Steve McCook over here. Kick the last goal of the match again, Steve. I'm making a habit of that, and I just love making a habit of playing the uh, finals for Ormond. Right in front of uh, Denny Cork, and again, you must have loved it. Well, it's not a sweet enough place on the ground to kick a goal, I don't think. Third quarter was a magnificent quarter for yourself. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this, Doss, I've been at the club for three years, mate. This is my third premiership. What, what more can you ask for, mate? Well, Nick, I'm very excited to have a chat to our next guest. He's been ingrained in the footy club for well over 20 years. He's got a story to tell. He's the current day president. Talk about Richard Simon. Let's welcome him in. Hello, Richard. G'day, Joe, and g'day, Nick. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Now... I don't know where I want to start, to be honest, because there's a couple of notes that have come through that are they just tickled my fancy when they came across the desk. I, I think I'll start here. Uh, the most unique story about myself, that's you, is that I umpired two of Ormond's A-grade premierships in 1989 and 1990. Now you're the club president. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but Richard, <laughs> what happened in 89 and 90 to get uh, those consecutive flags? Well, we better. I, I know the few of the collegians boys are a bit unhappy still, but um, oh no, I know that it sounds all. I know that it sounds all very mysterious and um, very uh, very unfair. But um, no, re- everyone needs to be rest assured that my umpiring days uh, preempted my time with Ormond. Uh, we happened to move into the area around Ormond Footy Club in 1992. So there you go. So for yourself, Richard, I mean, did you play footy growing up and then turn to umpiring or was just umpiring your thing and that's how you became involved in the Ammos? Yeah, no, look, I did footy at school and um, and played in the first 18 at Brighton Grammar. So that was for the two years 
um, of year 11 and year 12. And uh, But when I left school, yeah, I just thought that footy wasn't something that I wanted to do. And I'd had and I'd actually umpired for a couple of years some of the younger age groups. My father was um, a headmaster at the school, and he got me uh, to umpire a couple of the I think it was year eight, year sevens games, and, and I, I actually quite enjoyed it. So, so despite two of my older brothers being at Old Brighton after they left Brighton Grammar as well, um, I wasn't tempted to to follow that, and I took up umpiring. Yeah, so. Had a career of uh, of umpiring and and you know got some fantastic memories, including the I think it was six years with the amateurs. So um, yeah, it was fantastic. And now that you're the the president of Ormond, but and you said you you moved into the area, three sons who have all played at Ormond and two are still currently on on the playing list, despite the fact there is no footy this year. Yeah, and I guess that's um that's really the way that I've been ingrained into the Ormond club in that we live locally from when my boys were um, young and so they did Auskick. All of them did Auskick at Ormond, um, then played in the junior club at Ormond, you know, right through to under-17s and then progressed to the to the senior club and did the same pathway in cricket as well. So it's been, EE Gun Reserve's pretty much been the Simon family second home, um, you know, since, you know, two, you know 1992 and thereabouts. So, um, you know, really, uh, re- re- really, a big thrill for Pamela and myself, obviously, to have the three boys have two years playing together in the seniors. Um, and, um, you know, I know the boys, you know, got a, got a kick out of that as well. So, yeah, that, yeah, we've had, had some pretty pretty special moments as a family. Richard, putting your president's hat on for a moment, I just want to ask you about the importance um, of the Ormond Juniors. have quite a few players, obviously, and you talk about that family sort of atmosphere down at the club and I suppose the importance of the connection between the juniors and the seniors. Oh, yeah. Look, look the, the, the association's been very strong, I think, all the way through. But, you know, certainly in the seven years that I've been president, it's been a focus of mine and I and the committee have worked as hard as we can with the juniors to, you know, ensure that that pathway through the juniors to the seniors is very clear. Um, for the under 16 and under 17 year olds, and that the club, um, you know, is the uh, you know is the is the option for them when they want to move into seniors. And um, and look, you know, the junior club and the senior club, you know, we share the same jumper, the same club song, obviously use the same facilities. So you know, there's a fairly good um, platform there, obviously, from which we've been able to, you know, have a strong partnership. And the current president, Gavin Dwyer, and myself, you know, we'd be talking with each other once a week during the footy season. So um, really strong connection, and and I guess just to illustrate the point, I think it was in the 2015 grand final against Q. Um, we didn't win that day, but I think of the 22 players, um, 19 of them had played with the juniors. So that's pretty, wow. that's a pretty exceptional, you know, ratio, I guess. Well, while we're on the topic of grand finals, we'll go to a little bit more successful one. I asked the same thing. Simon Callagher, because um, he was watching on a year after he retired, but you were president in 2018 during that remarkable six-point win over Hampton Rovers. And I just wanted to get your memories of that occasion, particularly that final quarter and the excitement and the massive Ormond and Hampton crowd that was actually at Trevor Barker Oval. Yeah, look, it was an incredible day. And obviously, the day started well with the reserves uh, winning. You know, I guess the form of the season and the form of the final suggested that Ormond was probably favourites and, and at half-time everything was going really well. 
during the third quarter, Hampton, you know, fought back fantastically. And uh, I think we had about a four or five goal lead at half time. And I think by the by three quarter time, it was just over a goal or a couple of goals. And um, and then Hampton got got in front. And, and um, for about ten minutes there, probably for about the ten minute mark, the twenty minute mark, the ball I don't think came down. I went so. I was starting to rehearse the same um, president's message to players and supporters that I had uh, given in 2015, um, <laughs> the unsuccessful grand final attempt then. And um, but yeah, remarkably, uh, Max Kennedy just went bang, 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 and uh, and look, you know, his game or his last you know 10 minutes was just unbelievable, and to to win in the end after you know the, having convinced himself that we probably weren't going to win it. Um, to win was just extraordinary, and, and obviously to have two of my sons in the team, um, they haven't had an enormous success in finals. You know, whether it's cricket or footy, in juniors and seniors, and um, so for them to get a premiership victory together was fantastic. And obviously, you know, from a from a wife as well, and all of us, yeah, it was a wonderful day. You know, to win a double premiership, you know, was really special. Well, fast forward now to twenty twenty, and we know. How disappointing, I suppose, it's been from a player perspective. The boys put in a pre-season. They want to get up and about, but obviously things haven't gone to plan. I just want to know from a volunteer and a sponsor point of view, um, how difficult that's been for you guys um, to organise everything and to stay at the forefront of what needs to be done to ensure everyone's safe during this really unprecedented time of the um, coronavirus. Yeah, it's a good question. We, uh, as a committee and... um or probably more so the executive, plotted a path, you know, from March, you know, through until the last, you know, couple of weeks that would ensure that not only the players and the coaches, but also all of the other components of the club, you know, whether they be the supporters, life members, sponsors, volunteers, etc., all continue to be engaged. And, um, you know, and obviously early days, it was all about the safety um, and also complying with the the standards and guidelines required by state government and, and the VAFA. Um, early days, it was about you know understanding what we needed to do and and to ensure training could return safely. And when training you know got back underway, you know we wanted to ensure that yeah the supporters and uh, and others you know were enjoying that period um, of time with them that five weeks or so. So there was a lot of engagement, even though obviously they couldn't go down to the reserve and watch them train. Um, you know, we, we, we made sure that we had engagement through newsletters, you know, obviously the Facebook, you know, we've had a, had a fundraising um, effort that's been going on each Thursday evening at 8.30. There's a lucky number drawn out, over 100 numbers have been sold in that. So there's a, there's a good viewership, you know, around that that's kept us engaged as well. But there's probably going to be some learnings, obviously, you know, from this year. Um, but I guess for me personally, you know, I've just been absolutely astounded by the support, you know, particularly from the executive um, and also from the footy ops guys that have been responsible for leading the way in um, not only preparing, but also delivering and implementing the COVID-19 safety guidelines and precautions. And the players have been outstanding in their ability, not only to follow direction, but also embrace it and understand exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it um so it's been a wonderful team building and club building exercise in some respects and yeah as you say it's you know incredibly disappointing you know for all of us 
two not to be able to play this year. But by the same token, you know, we're really upbeat that there's been some fantastic um, advances um, that have been made, you know, not only amongst the, the players and the, and the coaches and the support staff, but also, you know, the, the, the supporters as well, that they've understood that there's been an incredible sacrifice made by so many people and so much effort that we know that there's going to be a good legacy from this year with the club. Richard, you talk about Ormond being this this great team of people that have come together, especially during these times. Uh, when you first took over the role as president, were there people around that were willing to, to help you out in your role um, when you were first finding your feet that have stuck by you and become great friends of yours in the last seven or eight years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've obviously been... With the club, you know, for a long time, like even when I was umpiring, I started to forge some pretty strong friendships with people and a lot of those people are still around the club now. So that was from 1989. Since retiring, becoming the club umpire or, or one of the reserve reserve club umpires with Steve Ahrens, who many will know, um, you know, that started in 96. So from 96 until about 2008, I think it was, I was the club umpire. So, even, so during even those years, I started to make some great friends and um, a lot of those, a lot of those people who um, were players in the reserves or or on the periphery of the seniors, you know, I was umpiring and so made some great friends and, and those people are the people that are around the club now, which is, which is good. And then when obviously I became um, a committee member on in 2013 and then took over the presidency in 2014, yeah, that was a really big focus of mine was to build the people around the club that could manage the load um, and that load, I'm sure any president that, is with us now um, and who has been in the job for anything more than two or three years will know that the, you know, the demand on um, the club committee and the president has only increased further and further. So it's important to have the people around you. I'm lucky that I've got probably four or five really close people on the committee and, and others that are around me and, and you know, we're at in the exec and, uh, and, and extension of the exec that are, that are really important to me. But we've got over 50 volunteers, you know, to pick up roles, you know, during the week and especially obviously Saturday and building up that base um, of support. Um, yeah, what, what was a, was a priority, but, and luckily, you know, we've got that support around us and it's meant that, you know, we're enjoying success. And, and I think that's what's, you know, really important to build the people around you and enjoy the success when it comes and also bunker down such as this year when the challenges confront us. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting ride. But we've had to, yeah, had to garner the support for sure. And you've been leading from the front right the way through. And we appreciate you allowing us putting your club in focus uh, this week, Richard. Thanks for joining us. And hopefully in 2021, we see Ormond fit, firing and fast out on the field. Thanks for joining us. Good on you guys. We really appreciate the effort. Thanks, mate. What a massive Club in Focus podcast this has been. All thanks to Mequacare being a proud partner of the Ammos for the last few years. They've been around since 1959. Not quite as long, Nico, as the Ormond Footy Club, who were established in 1931. Started playing in 1932, and it's all thanks to one of your Mafra men, Mr. Les Smith. And you haven't taken off... Your jumper since we started, the Ormond jumper, the blue and the brown, and you're going to wear that proudly for the next uh, 12 months until they run out there in 2021. I wouldn't be surprised if you're holding the banner when they run out next year in 2021, Nico. I'll certainly be there to help them celebrate, no doubt there. Uh, Premier seat grand final win, but no, nah, it's been a fantastic podcast to be a part of. I mean, the, the overwhelming theme from all of our five guests is, just, I suppose, how much the club means to them. Clearly, 
a family oriented club. You go down there, you don't really leave um, by the by the looks and by the sounds of things. And one of the greatest clubs ever um, in A section, particularly in the ammo. So just to delve into that, I mean, for mine, if we're talking highlights, let's talk about George Raphael for a moment. I mean, just his memory of 1950 and playing with Laurie Mithin and just. Um, the club obviously holds a pretty special place in his heart as well. Absolutely. No, certainly a highlight. Oh, I'm going to take away. I, I love Rich and Simon's, the story of just umpiring the last <laughs> couple of grades, uh, uh, last couple of A-grade grand finals and premierships. I'm calling conspiracy, Joey. I'm calling conspiracy well, on that. Collegians haven't stopped ringing since uh, <laughs> since we let them know. They want to recount into those two flags. But the, the highlight for mine is, is just listening to Mike MacArthur Allen just in general, I mean, his philosophies on on the world and of coaching. It's quite funny reading that article, the piece that we did uh, uncover from a couple of years ago, Nico, about the fact that he still goes along to Carlton Games and he still gets stroppy <laughs> in the stands and would make the moves on the magnet board. But uh, he also coached um, as well as Ormond. He spent a bit of time coaching De La Salle, his rivals, St. Kevin's and Mazenod, all a part of the Amos competition. And he only recently, Nico, gave away the teaching. He knew that... Um, still using chalk meant that his days were numbered and his, his time was <laughs> up in the teaching world when everyone's moved into whiteboards and laptops and computers. And Mike MacArthur Allen's still using chalk. I tell you what, too, yes, I yes. would love to see a welterweight scrap between him and Bernie Shea. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely phenomenal. We, we spoke about Bernie Shea on the last podcast with the DLR <laughs> Self Footy Club and the influence he's had there. I mean, there, there are master coaches all over our competition, all over it. And I know in the coming weeks we're going to talk about Old Parade. We're going to talk about a couple of other clubs who have reached out to us and we're urging all clubs, now that we do not have a season, confirm that we've got an opportunity now to put your team and your name in lights. Just email nick at vafa.com.au and we will find some time to spend an hour or so talking about your footy club and, of course, the help of Mequacare. Make it happen every single week. Of course, vafa.com.au is still running. There's still news coming out. I noticed that uh, my own footy club and a lot of footy clubs are still doing raffles and whatnot. Of course, the AFL is still going. Can we relocate the ammos to Queensland, Nico? Is that a chance? Well, we were tipped to play a B to D4 combined <laughs> big B match in Queensland this year. Yeah. Of course, didn't come to fruition, but I'll just reiterate for the clubs, for the clubs out there, yeah, just get in touch because this is probably the most fun we've had doing these and delving into the history of our clubs and talking to some of the stalwarts along yeah, the way. It's been absolutely magnificent. Of course, you would know about a Queensland game because you were probably going to go and leave me here in the cold Melbourne winter as per usual. Only think about yourself, <laughs> but it's been magnificent, Nico, to delve into all things the Auburn Footy Club. Uh, look after yourself. In uh, stage two of, uh, sorry, in wave two of these isolation lockdowns, but we are urging everyone to take care and to reach out if they do need help with anything. We look forward to bringing you the next edition of the Club in Focus podcast very soon. Oh, yeah.
Yeah, that's it.